Welcome to this episode of Living Legends, brought to you by New Farm and Weedman. I'm your host, John Reitman, and our guest today is Jim Husting, uh, who is a retired superintendent after a very long and successful career in the golf business, mostly in California. And Jim, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the first question I have to ask you is... 32 years in the same job at Woodbridge there, uh, I believe, located close to Stockton, kind of between Stockton and Sacramento. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So the obvious question, once again, 32 years in the same job, you don't hear that too much anymore. How did you manage to make that work for so long at one place? Well, let's see. Um, I started there in 87, and I just retired in April of this year. So um, first off, um, I had a really, really good pro. I worked with uh, Bob Volker for 30 years. He retired two years before me. And so we had an incredible relationship. And we always communicated with one another. He always always had my back. So as you know, in this business, the pro shop gets the complaints, the complaints, the compliments, et cetera, et cetera. So he would keep me informed quite a bit. And also the membership in the very, very beginning um, was just incredibly, they were an exception rather than the rule. They're, you know, down to earth people, um, upper middle class people, farmers, um, profession, young professionals, et cetera, et cetera. So things started to change a little bit um, towards the end of my career though, with, uh, especially with the, the Great Recession hitting, I think, in 2007, et cetera. Things started to, to change rather rapidly in the um, for the club. So, but other than that, it was the, the the people that I was working with were incredible. I had a general manager. I went through three general managers, um, and the longest was a gentleman by the name of Rick Morgan. I think I worked with him for 23 years. So. We had uh, some really, really good people. Now, out in that part of the country, I would you're in agricultural land, uh, surrounded by agricultural land. I would think. Um, I've been through Sac- yeah, I've been through Sacramento. Never been down in that Stockton area. Um, but one thing I do know about that area is, in the summertime, gets insanely hot. Yes, very hot. Um, we, uh, we're like what we call in the transition zone here. And I'm actually near Lodi, kind of like stuck right in the middle between Stockton and Sacramento. Woodbridge is kind of like a bedroom community of Lodi. And we're in, influenced by what they call the Delta breezes. And so we could be 105 during the day, yet we'll cool down to like 65 at night. So I think in the 32 years I was there, I could actually count um, the evenings that did not cool down below 70 degrees on one hand. So it was, it was kind of an interesting climate for sure. <clears throat> yeah. What kind of a growing environment is that? Well, it's kind of like you grow what you can grow. Um, <laughs> I was, a kind of like half cool season, half warm season. Um, obviously being in the transition, some summers would be extremely warm. So that would, uh, favor the Bermuda grass and then in some summers it you know didn't really get that hot so cool season grasses were able to survive a lot better 
than previous years. So it was, you know, I had pole greens and cool season surrounds. So that was always a challenge. And the greens were very old. I am, I, uh, <laughs> they were old push-ups. I think I had 11 greens that were built, um, in the fifties. So, uh, I only rebuilt three greens when I was there in 32 years. So it was uh, rather, rather an interesting environment. Needless to say, I didn't go very far from, uh, <laughs> the course in the summer months. So I took my vacations and, and had my children, uh, during the off season, usually, which was around November through beginning of May. So <laughs> now, <clears throat> what were conditions like when you started your career compared to the end of your career, primarily mowing height and some uh, cultural practices and things like that? Can it walk us through how all that changed over the course of three decades? Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> when I, I inherited a pretty good uh, uh, condition course, and I left the course in pretty good condition. So, but um, you're right, the mowing heights and green speeds were rather so. And I started there in 87. It wasn't uh, the, the green speed phenomena and the low mowing heights phenomena hadn't really hit yet. So as, you know, as my career, um, and also the rolling fad hasn't, uh, wasn't even, you know, on anybody's radar. So, but I remember starting mowing heights at 530 seconds and that was fine green speeds were high eights low nines no problem um you know i did a lot of vert cutting and stuff like that normal stuff aeration but as the years progressed uh, member expectations especially for the low handicap people um golfers um just put a lot of pressure so you know um and it was kind of fun to begin with to, to figure out uh, how fast you could get the greens and then the rolling, you know, the long, obviously the mowing heights went, went down. And then um, and we were always mowing with triplexes. We didn't mow, we didn't start mowing greens by hand, which was kind of like a going against the fad um, with the labor problems and everything. We didn't start mowing greens by hand uh, until about four or five years ago. So we put the triplexes away and, mowed with those when we could um and you know just to give a break but then the rolling fat you know so i started mowing at 5 30 seconds and by the time i left i was below an eighth i think i was at uh, 0.110 and <laughs> on this on the uh, bench bench plate uh, so which was below an eighth and we would double cut double roll we started with vibratory rollers and then we got the sidewinders and so rolling you know, it was like three to four times a week. Double cutting was a couple times a week, especially for men's events. So the, the maintenance on the greens increased incredibly. And so, and that was, um, it was okay from about <laughs> no, you know, middle October to about beginning of May, but from about beginning of May to begin that time period, it was a real, real iffy struggle. We could get some cool spells but you know the hot spells would be right around the corner that that would be the challenge is to maintain that regime during that type of uh, inclement weather what were the effects of, as those expectations increased what were the effects on plant health and 
disease pressure and so forth, given the, the climate you were in? How did those two oh, the, factors interact? The, the disease pressure was incredible. Obviously, the shorter you cut it, the shorter your roots go. And especially with the hot weather, probably one thing that saved me there was uh, our water was excellent. Quality was excellent. And, um, and uh, I had a, a preventative d- disease control. Um, I mean, I would, <laughs> towards the end of my career, I just got kind of sick of it, actually. I, I was uh, applying a lot of pesticides to keep the grass uh, alive and, you know, to keep it green from fading out, et cetera. So that kind of wore on me after a while. I'm kind of anti-pesticide right now, <laughs> only because I put so much out. During my career, it was, I don't know whether to be ashamed of that or that was something I had to do or, or whatever, but, uh, kind of, uh, kept me sane during the summer knowing that I at least had some protection down. So, right. So also you mentioned how you had been triplexing greens and then later in your career, as these golfer expectations, uh, continued to intensify, you had to convert to uh, walk mowing at a time when the cost of labor is going up and the ability to find dependable labor is going down and so what was the what was the effect on your your labor budget as you were having to do more things because of what the golfers expected of you well uh, my labor budget didn't change too much. I just had to make it work, and that was difficult. So they didn't give me more money to just because I started walking um, greens by hand. <laughs> so I had to, you know, something had to give a little bit. Maybe I put uh, rough roughs didn't uh, weren't mowed uh, as many hours of the week as uh, we normally did, and stuff like that. A little handwork suffered here and there, but overall, you know, we made it work. And um, it turned out okay. I was rather skeptical at first, but you know, as uh, superintendents go, sometimes you have to, you know, deal with the cards that were dealt. Yes, so you just roll with the punches and and do what they want and see what happens. Something's got to give somewhere along the line. You can't do all the the extra stuff and then do everything else you were doing. It you know things like roughs and so forth. That maybe you don't uh, pay as much attention to those as as you once did. Tell us how you communicated to your members and your committees and so forth at that time as far as you might want this, but this is what it's gonna this is what it's gonna cost us to give you this. You know what I'm saying? Oh they, yeah, this was a huge, huge I really didn't get too much um hassle. All I had to do was uh, at board meetings and greens committee meetings when especially when uh, <laughs> the, the subject and this was always a subject next to green speeds was the height of cut of the rough how come you're not mowing the rough as much and i said you know i've given you the 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 solution to the problem and it's now it's in your court i said you want the rough to be mowed more i need another person well so then the people on the finance committee and greens committee and board they would figure it out and I never got that extra person. So, and, but, uh, you know, I never was really lynched for high roughs. I got a lot of people upset with me, but, uh, you know, that, you know, that issue was, I always had a, I always had a good, uh, rebuttal on that. And that re- they never really acted, acted about it. We, yeah, we went to, uh, 
um, rotary mowers, which were much faster. And then the, uh, I was probably one of the last superintendents in the area to actually use gang mowers for rust. But then, uh, but when I left, they had to, and we had gone to totally rotary mowers in the rough. We could actually, um, you know, go faster and stuff, but they have their own problems as well. So, um, but, uh, you know, the rough situation at Woodbridge probably will never be solved <laughs> because it, the labor is just not there. The budget's not there. I don't think anymore. And then, and you're right. The labor situation is incredible. There's just not that many people wanting to work for minimum wage or a little bit higher. Um, anymore it's it's incredible just the landscape companies in the area are having a tremendous time and the golf courses too i mean people are just not you know people are just not coming to the door and filling out applications so yeah since you bring that up you know for for those who aren't familiar with how things are going in california you're on a plan there a graduated plan to bring to slowly bring minimum wage up to what i don't know what is it like 20 or 22 dollars an hour or something like that i don't think it's that high i think it's going to hit 15 bucks an hour in two years right now it's at 12 next year it's going to go up to 13 and year after that 14 i think it's a dollar an hour rate for the next couple of years but i'm Definitely, it's definitely going to hit $15 an hour, at least in the valley here. I think some parts in the coastal areas like San Francisco, et cetera, it's already up there, maybe even higher. Yeah, and some other places, you know, I think New uh, some parts of New York, I think, are doing the same thing or something similar to it. Um, but you have these, you know, these, ex- these labor expenses are obviously going to go up. Um, and then- well, that's huge. It was a yeah. huge hit on our budget, just in my department alone. And so, you know, for a private club, then you've got the, the other side of the facility, like the dining room staff, the kitchen staff, the pro shop staff, the tennis court swimming pool staff. So you have to figure in the whole facility. And if your membership is in decline and you're having a hard time filling, you know, your membership that's a huge huge hit on the annual budget every year yeah from the private club side the revenue is not going up so what what do you think is the future for golf in places like california where you have the the expenses raising exponentially so anyway you have the expenses raising exponentially on the on the labor side and and you still might not get all the help you need but the revenue is not going up to match it so what is the future going to look like well um i think the facilities will close facilities will um if they have the ability to sell part of their facility and and use that money for improvements um and then you'll have private country clubs getting We've already seen that a few instances here in California, actually more than a few, where the management companies will come in and just basically buy out the membership. Um, and then uh, they'll be kind of like a semi-private club. And that's one way to, to, to get around it. So um, I, don't, I don't know of any golf courses that are being built in California right now. I mean, it's just uh, everything has just come to a grind, grinding halt. And complicating that 
equation too is going to be you know if you bring new people in and you start them at x and then you've had to already bring all your longer tenured employees up to that same level you know you know that's going to create a great deal of angst among them if they're if if new people coming in the door are going to automatically make the same amount the same wage that they are so that even the people who are who've been there a while you're, you're going to have to raise them up even beyond that minimum wage target yeah. level just to keep them if they can um i was unique in in my position at woodbridge is i had an incredible staff and they were probably one of my you know biggest assets and i, I think i have maybe a half a dozen assistants that are out in the field and now that are now superintendents and doing very well i have had some people just get out of the golf business altogether um i don't know about the rest of the country but uh, it's very hard to even get uh young kids to come up to be a, an assistant superintendent i remember in the 90s you you could uh advertise for an assistant and get like a dozen two dozen applicants now it's very rare you can get more than five applicants if you put your your advertisement out it's um it's tough i think the word's gotten out that uh, pay's not that great um and the hours are incredibly long <laughs> and uh i think um, a lot of uh, people have complained just about how tough the industry has gotten how cutthroat the industry has become as well so it's tough i mean my, my my people stayed with me for years. I mean, I I had when I left, I had numerous employees that would had been with me for twenty plus years, and I don't think uh, they're going to move. So, but I always I always had problem filling the bottom tier, maybe the bottom tier of my staff. They were always revolving, but I always had that core group of individual staffers that just were just I could count on them every single day. Yeah, and kids coming up today, you mentioned how difficult it is to even get a, someone to apply for, to be an assistant. Kids coming up today aren't going to work those long hours. It's just, it's not in oh. their DNA. They're not going to do it. I, I, I Sometimes when I look back, I, I just wonder how my wife put up with me. I mean, I was very, uh, very active in my professional associations, the Sierra Nevada GCSA and a member of a lot of committees on well, actually one committee on GCSA for numerous years. And then I, you know, rebuilt the maintenance building, put in a brand new irrigation system, et cetera, et cetera. I was just, um, I was hardly at home for about 10 years there. And, uh, my wife kind of raised the two children on her own. <laughs> I was kind of wondering, you know, when I look back at it, it was like, Whoa, man, that was a lot of time spent uh, just on my career and not enough time with my family. Yeah, that you never get back, and I think kids nowadays know that. I know, for sure. And um, that seems to be the general trend. When I talk to some of the old-timers at the meetings that I go to, too, it's uh, it's uh, we all kind of uh, reminisce about uh, those days, how many hours we would put in and stuff like that. But... Uh, those days are gone. I don't have to worry about it.
Pinpoint Fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. Since 1999, Weedenman North America has distributed the Weedenman brand of specialized implements for compact tractors and light duty utility vehicles. The German-engineered product line includes machines for turf regeneration, collection and removal of grass and leaves, turf sweepers, and sand spreaders. Consistency and reliability have been Wiedemann's philosophy from the very beginning and the basis of its guiding principle of only the best. Wiedemann North America is headquartered in Savannah, Georgia, and managed by Will Wolverton. Visit Wiedemann North America on the web at WiedemannUSA.com. Long before you were a superintendent, you earned a degree from Kent State in Latin American Studies, which I'm sure the fluency in Spanish probably helped you a lot as a superintendent. But what was the what was the plan in earning that degree? Um, I really didn't have a plan. Um, like uh, many children or kids back in the late 60s and early 70s, we were trying to find our way. So I was just going to school just to, you know, it was a thing to do at, out of high school is just go to college. And so, um, but I always worked at a local country club, Lake Forest Country Club in Hudson, Ohio. I always started working there in the summers. Um, I think in 68 or 69. And then um, I always, even when, it, even when I was going to college, when I was in Ohio and in the area, I'd always come back um, into uh, summer jobs. And then my old superintendent, Tom Baker, he saw, sat me down one day and said, hey, why don't you? And I asked him some questions. What, how did you get into business and stuff like that? So he gave me encouragement. And then finally, you know, I just said, you know, let's just, do this and so i started looking around um the country for turf programs and horticulture programs and in the early 70s you know there were tons of really good schools penn state was one of them uh, oregon state was another and then there was cal poly and san Luis Obispo and pomona and well being a kid from ohio i said you know i i, I really really want to get out of here <laughs> so um, I had an opportunity because my father got transferred um, from uh, Ohio to uh, California, and I went out to visit them in, I think, the winter of 72 or 3, and um, I said, man, California, I, I need to get out of Ohio. So I did some research, uh, applied to Cal Poly because it looked like they had a great horticulture, and they had a couple of turf grass classes, and, and on their catalog, they said... Uh, San Luis Obispo, 12 miles from the coastal beaches. And I said, okay, that's it. So I applied there, got in. And um, while I was uh, working at a, going to school there, um, I worked at a local golf course, San Luis Bay Inn, right on the coast. And so 
I was just, from there, I just, my career took off and became an assistant shortly after college. And my first and only superintendent job followed shortly thereafter here at Woodbridge. So for about the past decade or so, you've also been teaching. How did you get Correct. into that? How did you get into that? Why? And and tell us, you know, what you what enjoyment you get out of that experience. Well, um, I had a government relations uh, um, set up when I was a government relations uh, person for the California GCSA, and I was always trying to build my. Um, um, email list and contacts and I met the head of the department uh, horticulture department at Delta Community College in Stockton and I, uh, Mike Toscano and I um, developed a relationship with him and one day he just uh, said hey um, I, I really have a hard time teaching my turf grass class would you like to teach turf <laughs> I said sure why not so uh, he set me up and Went through the interview process and uh, uh, actually actually started one semester before I was supposed to teach turf. I, then I started teaching plant ID. I substituted for a teacher that had a, um, a health problem, and so I started teaching plant ID. And then the following semester, taught turf, and uh, and it was really kind of awesome. It was only um, I taught one class a semester and always at night, so I never ever interfered with my work um it was a little interesting juggling things around at first but i got used to it and i just you know um developed uh, i really liked teaching as i don't know if you're familiar with community colleges in california but you get a kind of like a potpourri of uh, students individuals coming in you get the um you know the people that just want to learn something and take it home and use it in their gardens or you get the people that uh, are actually young students you get uh, those people that are actually you know surfing around trying to find what they want to do with their life as well and using some of the classes of transfer to the uc system and stuff like that so so that was fun um i enjoyed it we would uh, have labs and stuff like that i'd go out and take the students to local uh, sod farms local golf courses my my own golf course at woodbridge we'd have field trips and stuff like that so I did that for quite a while, and then um, I took a two years absence of that. Things were getting kind of crazy at work, so I said, hey, take me off the rotation. But then um, once things got okay at work, I, I asked to get back on the rotation. The gentleman put me on, the, uh, Mike put me on the uh, <clears throat> roster again, and I started teaching again. And then when I retired in April, the, Mike had since retired as well. He's now in Kansas, and the new department head asked me, Hey, do you want to take teach two classes? And I go, Whoa, that's interesting. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm teaching uh, fundamentals of horticulture and uh, fall plant ID. So I'm teaching uh, two classes this semester and I'm signed up to take two more next year. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I, I really like it. It keeps me busy. That's for sure. I volunteer a lot of time at, um, uh, Delta Community College has an incredible facility. We have a, um, a retail nursery. We've got a green, a brand new greenhouse. We have a maintenance building with all sorts of equipment, and uh, it's quite, it's fun. We have a demonstration garden that we uh, keep up and have all sorts of nice plants. I'm in charge of our vegetable garden right now. 
So it's fun. I'm, I enjoy it a lot. How much of your curriculum is turf specific and how many students do you typically have who might be interested in, in turf? Um, <laughs> this is very interesting. We have a turf, the turf grass uh, class is now going to be deactivated. Um, the enrollment in turf has gone down incredibly. We do have a landscape maintenance class that we uh, focus on about three or four weeks of turf, you know, cool season 101, warm season 101 and stuff like that and, and basic maintenance practices. But, uh, you know, the whole turf end is concentrated in um, uh, the landscape maintenance industry for sure. And there's not that many people wanting to get in to the landscape maintenance industry. They don't, young students nowadays, they, they're really not interested in starting at the ground up, operating a weed eater or sitting on a mower or doing weeding or edging sand traps or stuff like that. I always used to, when I taught turf, I always used to kind of finagle a couple of, uh, summer interns um, for, for work-study programs, but uh, none of them ever really went on to um, continue with a, any type of a turf grass degree or any type of a turf grass business profession. So that uh, I saw that right away, something um, that, uh, you know, was very, very noticeable. Um, not too many people were into at sports fields or golf courses or just even landscape management companies. So that's, that's a, I think, a trend that uh, is going to continue. Take us back through your career and what was your experience on the government relations side? Oh, that was so much fun. Um, I'm really kind of anti-politics right now. <laughs> Yeah, that's easy especially to do. On, yeah, especially on the national level. But getting involved in the local level was absolutely fascinating, and, and, and especially on the statewide level. Um, I don't know really how I – oh, I know how I got into it. Um, it was uh, <laughs> attending – I was um, – for the state chapters in California, they send two representatives to the state association – um, and they represent uh, the local chapters in the state association. And so I was, I think I was vice president or something like that. And um, when I was, so I was attending um, a local, uh, or the uh, California meetings, and somebody mentioned about, you know, we really need to get moving on this grass carp thing. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar about uh, uh, what grass carp is, but uh, <laughs> they're a big, a fish that uh, eats just veggies and underground weeds. And so, and they had a program down south um, in the um, Hilo Desert, and they were actually allowed to stock the grass carp there on their own with a, with a permit and, or in a relationship with uh, uh, the wildlife people there. They would actually render the carp sterile through some type of radiation process, and then they would actually be allowed to stock the, the fish in their ponds and stuff for uh, control some of the weeds there. And so we wanted to get that um, going statewide. So I raised my hand and said, I'll do it. And so that's how it started. And then I latched on to a, um, a gentleman by the name of George Steffes, who 
um, used to be the legislative advisor for Ronald Reagan, and he had his, he had his own um, lobbying firm. And now, so would that have been when Reagan was governor? Yes. Yeah, of California. Mm-hmm. Correct. And by that time, he you know he wasn't associated with Reagan, but um, he had his own lobbying firm, and uh, so. Uh, he was a certified golf nut too. And so I'm not sure just exact. Oh, he would like attend meetings or I would attend meetings. And then we kind of did a, um, it was a couple failed, uh, uh, try attempts to get the carp legalized. And I think I met him at some type of a hearing in Sacramento and we, um, you know, introduced ourselves and we started to be, we actually started to become pretty good friends and, so he said, I'll help you. Now, he made the California GCSA an offer <laughs> that uh, we couldn't refuse. You know, I'm sure you're probably aware of how much um, lobbying firms cost. <laughs> they would, so he, would, he just gave us an incredibly ridiculous flat fee. It was a monthly flat fee, and it gave us unlimited access to his, um, his firm. And so um, I, I used uh, him tremendously. He gave me such an education on how to, you know, make things work. And um, so it was amazing to see him go. And so I, I would speak between um, one of my most um, memorable uh, uh, experiences when I talked in front of uh, um, at a um, Senate natural resources and wildlife committee when we were trying to get the graft cart bill passed we actually got a senator to write up the bill with george's help of course and so and as usual the bill had to go through certain committees and then it had to go through the get passed to the senate then go to the assembly then get signed by the governor and so um i sat in on the committee and gave a little spiel and the chairman of that committee was the uh was tom hayden and so that was very very interesting so i'm sure you know who tom hayden was ex um um i think he was married to jane fonda and he was uh one of the uh um, people indicted for the democratic national convention riots in 1968 so he is now um he was now in the um, political arena, and he got elected for whatever. And he was so that was kind of interesting going in front of him, and he was totally anti-grass carp because it was. And at that time, the Department of Fish and Game was total anti-grass carp as well because it was a non-native species. And so, and they had had um, some uh, failures with the uh, introductions of. Uh, non-native species into California, which is understandable. But um, we persevered and stuck to it, and we uh, organized as a as a group, the California GCSA, and we got some other allied associations to come in with us, and heck, if, uh, and then I saw when the came time to get certain committees to vote yes or no, so I was kind of like in the, in the background watching George kind of you know, how they lobby, how his staff would go in and talk to each and end of individual Senate members or assembly members and 
how they moved in the hallways and oh, it was fascinating. And so, but lo and behold, the bill passed. And so, uh, we got the grass carp legalized. I think it was 1997. So, but it's since fallen into disarray, but, um, that whole program. So, uh, um, that was fun. That was a kick. Yeah. Right. In to what's the fulfillment you get out of being able to, I guess, do work on behalf of your colleagues, but also give back to the industry that's given you so much? Well, that was, um, I always wanted to do that. Um, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard to describe. Well, um, happened such a long time ago, and um, um, I don't know if anybody else experiences what I did, but I gave so much of myself, and but I loved doing it, that at one point, um, and it was very fulfilling. I've, I've been recognized by numerous, associates, you know, recognized by GCSA, recognized by my local uh, chapters, uh, two local chapters, Northern California and Sierra Nevada for my dedication. And that means a lot when you get recognized by, you know, for your um, work and by your peers. But at the same time, there, there was a point where all of a sudden I just said to myself, I've had enough. <laughs> I, I just can't do it anymore. So, and so you just basically suffer, I think, uh, volunteer burnout. <laughs> so. so now that you're retired, you still teach. What do you, what do you do for fun? Um, I like to, uh, hike. I like to exercise. Um, well, and right now I like to travel. My wife and I've done some really, really nice um, vacations so far with more to come. I've only been, geez, retired for seven months. But for fun, I really like to teach. Right now that's, you know, fun. <laughs> and I like to uh, interact with my elder kids. So um, we're going to go see my daughter for Thanksgiving. And then my son and his girlfriend are going to come stay with us for Christmas. So we're looking forward to that. And um, But, to, yeah, for me, fun right now would be just teaching. I really like the facility that we we have and I'm really involved in that and heavily involved in that. I you know, I, I spend a lot of time there, probably twenty plus hours a week there. So it's fun. So I'm kinda of retired, not really retired. So whatever. <laughs> well Jim, thanks so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate it. It was great talking okay. to you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.